You're listening to the Brown Trout and Bridge Beers Podcast. There's an event coming up uh, in February. The Eau Claire Fly Tires are putting on. They're calling it the Fly Tire Rendezvous. So it's February 17th uh, from 6 to 9 p.m. at Lucette Brewing Company. I know Lund's Fly Shop uh, is a part of it. Those uh, mm-hmm. Eau Claire Yahoo's are are putting it on so you know if anybody's looking for an excuse to go on a thursday and go tie some flies with some people um for sure there's rumors of a free root beer or beer uh one free one upon entry again again sorry lucette brewing company in menominee wisconsin okay so just to hop across the border um and yeah like i said that's february 17th um you know we'll we'll keep pushing it out on like instagram stories and stuff like that but it should be a pretty fun event if if anybody's looking to get some tying in and uh yeah get out of the house a little bit so well uh yeah, we're, you know, a week late, but it's another episode of Brown Trout Bridge Beer. So thanks for tuning in. Um, and of course, we're still doing Zoom episodes because it's COVID sucks. COVID because COVID sucks. 50% of the people on this call realize that intimately. The other 50 are supermen and uh, somehow <laughs> skirted past it after a recent outing. Um, but we've got Mr. Matt Evers with us. Hello. Uh, as always, we've got two new guests on the podcast. They've been on the perimeter of cheering us on, hopefully, over the last couple of years. And uh, we definitely pull a lot of knowledge out of these two. But I'll go ahead and let you guys introduce yourselves. Ted. I am Ted Higman, uh, sometimes tournament fishing partner with Grant Meyer and uh, professor at the University of Minnesota, trout fisherman in the winter smallmouth bass and sometimes toothy fish fishermen the rest of the year perfect jimbo Hi, jim aronson self-employed doing my best to have the most vacation-like lifestyle possible i do fish quite a bit in the winter time primarily well in the winter time all trout in the summer largemouth bass panfish and opportunistic trout fishing i can appreciate that so i we're going to jump into your, your summer, uh, fishing style. Uh, how do you like to go out and, and catch, catch fish in the summer? Talking to Jim, Jim, Jim. Yeah. Jim. Sorry. Uh, a kayak almost every day. And I fish from a sit on top, uh, touring kayak and, uh, almost uh, probably 90% fly rod 
um, mostly four weights. Um, even when I'm fishing the largemouth bass, I'll step up to a six or a seven weight if I'm targeting the bass specifically. But usually a four weight because I'm targeting the larger bluegills as well. And almost always surface flies in the summer. So Do you have a rod bolt on your kayak? Uh, no. <laughs> Why not? I, I, I'm fairly minimalist with my kayak. There's no storage at all. Um, any flies or anything are in the pocket of my uh, life jacket. And um, uh, literally my fly rod holder is a, a sponge wedged between a, a, the bungee and a water bottle. Can can you elaborate a little bit on this? Isn't just like a normal sit on top kayak. It's like a built for speed fighter jet kayak. Yeah, it's a, it's a sixteen foot. Uh, I don't know. It's a Kevlar uh, carbon fiber and fiberglass layup. It's what thirty two pounds at sixteen feet. And uh, it is definitely built for speed. It is not would not be most people's choice for fishing, but uh, it's incredibly fast and surprisingly stable. Can you get a good cast sitting that low to the water? You slap the water um, behind you. It it can make for a bit of a challenge with heavier weight fly rods. Um, I do find this is a little easier. I'm sitting up about four inches off the water where with my uh, touring, regular touring kayak, I'm, I don't know, my butt's probably an inch or two under the level of the water. But uh, so this is a lot easier, uh, Mm. I'm finding. And, you know, most of my casts are 20 to 40 feet, banging reed lines and things. So, um, but when I was fishing with an eight weight, very stiff eight weight, I was having a lot of elbow and shoulder problems trying to cast um, with a elevated arm. So have you ever like hooked into like a monster bluegill and gotten tipped out out of your sit on top kayak? <laughs> I have never no. fallen out of my kayak. Well, let's mark that down for a goal for 2022. Uh, yes. Um, if you're listening to the podcast. Uh, okay. There, there's a bit of some moving water situations where uh, I should not have been where I was and I've fallen out. But on a lake, I've never fallen out of my kayak or tipped over. If uh, if you've ever been fishing with Jim, you may, may or may not have had the pleasure of watching Jim tip into a stream once or twice, maybe stepping too deep, like on the Kinney. Yeah. Yeah, it's fine. I have done that. As long as you're it staying happens. dry in the kayak. It happens. Yep. All right. Um, First topic I kind of want to jump into just because it's kind of fresh in our minds. And uh, the four, so the four of us went down to southeastern Minnesota, um, the technically the second weekend of January, uh, mm-hmm. where we found very frozen rivers. Um, and Saturday, what did we have for a high? Like maybe 15 degrees with, with yeah, the wind okay. that was hucking down there? Yeah, 15, 20 at the most. Um, But it was both of yours first time down in that section south of like Rochester and south of the state park areas. So I kind of wanted to get both of your opinions on 
you know, what do you think about the water down there compared to, you know, your normal stomping grounds, maybe over on the Kinney or the Rush area and kind of your general thoughts on it from down there? Ted, I'll let you lead off. Um, well, we were unable to get into the rut because of the ice. And so do we say what we fish? Yeah, you can say. Yeah, that's fine. Uh, we were on Weissel Creek. I don't think it's a great secret. And my first impression was it had more water in it than I would have thought a tributary of the root had. So it was not, uh, you know, sneak up on the edge, you know, standing on dry land, dapping a fly. It was, it was real fly fishing, waiting, mm -hmm. not a lot of waiting because of the ice, uh, but, but uh, absolutely a nice river, I would say comparable in size to rush at martell okay or kinney yeah kinney yeah, kinney where it, kinney. Kinney up by 94 mm -hmm. yeah yeah I, th so, I think you i think you nailed it pretty good though i mean it's surprising how much water actually flows through that even in in some of those wider sections but um you know tu's done some nice work down there over the last couple of years too to really help with um, some of the bank erosion and skinning it up in some spots to help with some of those issues that they were having before. But Jim, what do you think about it? Um, I was really impressed and I, I would agree. I think in the two, I think it was about two and a half miles of stream that we've covered. Um, I was really impressed with uh, the TU work. Um, made some really nice fishable uh, runs and, and certainly uh, definitely want to go back when it's a bit warmer. <laughs> but it's fair uh, enough. But yeah, I I really was impressed with uh, the water. Would agree, it's probably very similar in size to the Rush or Upper Kinney, um, and uh, maybe a little more accessible. At least the stretches we were uh, mm -hmm. we were along as far as being able to cast into probably more fishable water than the rush of the upper kinney and matt which tu chapter is that down there do you remember mm, i don't know but I, I think maybe the the habitat work was done by the state oh the state did that one okay i believe so yes well thank you state of minnesota <clears throat> see not all everybody goes to um college football coaches it it goes nope. to other good projects as well <laughs> as well um <laughs> What, so when it comes to like winter, winter fishing, what is your, uh, how do you approach the water? What, you know? Yeah. For two know, guys that primarily the only trout fishing they do is in the winter time. Yeah. What do you guys, how do you guys go about it? What's your setup? I can start. <laughs> go Ted. Uh, yeah. So, um, first off, like everybody else, you know, it's great if you get a midge hash and you can fish dry flies. Um, <clears throat> I've become pretty much a thoroughly modern carry two rods guy. Usually, usually I rig up my nymph rod, uh, which has been for years, a 10 foot five weight Orvis Helios two. Um, and so on the heavy side for most people's nymphing rod <clears throat> and then carry a dry fly rod too. Um, I tend to like walk from hole to hole, might even take my pack off and everything and just set everything down because in winter, you know, it's pretty much concentrated 
buckets below riffles and catch the, you hope there's some feeding fish. If, if they're nymph and that they've, that they're active enough that they're nosing up towards the riffle. Um, it's very, very light fishing. Um, usually a two fly rig. My, my nymph rig right now, I'll just describe it to you, geek, geek out on that a little bit. Um, I use actually a five and a half foot furled leader for starters dressed up real nice so it floats and i like those in the winter because they're supple okay and then to that i attach almost five feet of uh 2x and that's where my indicator can slide up and down and i almost always use the um <clears throat> the new zealand just a little little speck of wool and then off of that uh that's mono, by the way, 2X mono, so it floats. And then I put uh, little sections of leader, uh, usually maybe a section of 4X. Uh, I use 10 split shot, start with size 6, which that British stuff is a tenth of a gram, I think. Very, very light. So it casts, it, uh, casts pretty nicely. And then 5X and 6X, and um, that's kind of my setup. It's, you know, you can easily use a Rio nine foot three X leader as your starter in that. I just like the, um, I like the furled leaders because they're, they're supple in the winter. You know, if I was fishing in a Montana guide boat, I probably wouldn't use that setup where you're using a little more lead and everything. And a, probably something like a thingamabobber, I would use a regular old nylon leader, but I like it. And so even though um, Ryan Fleshig from Mad River Outfitter says you can't kiss, cast a nymph rig on a furled leader, you can if they're the, the light <laughs> ones. Um, you know, another thing I'd like to mention about that is uh i use uh you know the i think one of the things that's really enabled these ultralight rigs and usually i'm fishing less than three feet sometimes a little bit more but is you know the modern five and six x tippet just is so good right mm -hmm. you can use those ultralight tippets and get very very light midge nymphs, nymphs down without too much weight and i just kind of wanted to remind all the young people out here um I've got a book here. It's called The Way of the Trout. It's by a guy named M.R. Montgomery. He died a few years ago. I think he wrote this in the 90s. And he quotes Lee Wolf towards Lee Wolf towards the end of his life. So that would have been, uh, he died 30 years ago. Somebody asked him, what is the most, what's advanced most in fly fishing? So Lee was probably late 80s at this point. He said, the tippet. You know, and that was 30 years ago. And mm -hmm. also in Montgomery's book, he lists, I thought this was very interesting. He lists, this is Herder's Catalog, 1950. Okay. Herder's, so at that time, nylon was just supplanting gut, silkworm gut leaders. And Herder's best gut, 1X, 1X. Uh, what do you think, uh, by the way, and Herder's best nylon, 1X, 
what do you think the breaking strength was? And I, you know, I don't have, I don't have my one X in front of me, but I've got two X trout hunter nylon two X. So this is modern stuff here. And they list the tensile strength of two X as 9.9 pounds. I was, I was going to say for the, for the gut, two pounds for the early nylon, maybe four. Uh, the gut was 2.9 and the nylon was 3.0. Nylon was like brand new. It was barely better than gut, but it was cheaper. So if you go down to five X, which is really about all that people ever bought again, 1950, five X gut had a tensile strength of 0.8 pounds. And the nylon was slightly better at 0.9 pounds. So, you know, right now, 7X trout hunter nylon is 2.2 pounds. (laughs) You know, yeah, that's pretty good. So basically these indicator rigs with five and six X fluoro, which is a little bit better than nylon. And of course sinks better, you know, there's hardly any fish in the rush that are going to break you off. Mm. So that's why I like those ultra light, really long leaders that I'm almost fishing like dry flies. And I, I like to find a little seam that I think maybe has a fish and really kind of probe it out. And I probably used up my time, so I'll turn it over to somebody else. <laughs> you can have all the time, Ted. No, I, I've got a yeah, I've got a follow up on that. So, you know, if you had let's call it January, February fishing, if you had two two flies that you had to stick with, you know, on your indicator rig, what are what are your two flies you're gonna put in your box for the two months? Um probably a size 16 that resembles a intended to resemble a blue wing olive, which could be maybe um, a pheasant tail or some kind of variant on a pheasant tail, but, and maybe with a bead head, but appropriate to a size 16 and then uh, 18 or 20 variant on a midge (laughs) um, black tan, or if the water's a little off red. Mm -hmm. It's a good setup. Mm -hmm. Do you believe in the pink squirrel? (laughs) You know, I've fished them and they work. I always carry a few. If I end up fishing a bit deeper, then I have some of those that are with tungsten heads and stuff. Okay. uh, But, you know, it's just not really drawn to the gaudy stuff. As I think Grant and Jim know, I have, you know, I spend a lot of time doing regular old gear bass fishing when the fly fishing isn't very good midsummer. So big gaudy, ugly lures are, you know, I get, all, I get my full of that, fill of that all summer. <laughs> Fair enough. And Jim. In fairness, I want to say I have never cast a proper Euro nymph rig that 10 and a half foot three weight that everybody seems to use these days. Yep. And I will put in a plug actually, uh, the yeah, West Wisconsin one. chapter of Trout Unlimited, Kayap 2-ish. Mm-hmm. Um, they're meeting February 2nd. Is that a Tuesday in River Falls? 
also on Zoom. Uh, Scott Stewart, who's a member, is doing a Euronymphing presentation. And Scott uh, worked for the DNR, Wisconsin DNR, from 1982 to 2016 as a fisheries manager and then fisheries supervisor in Baldwin and Madison. And he's been active in TU for the last 25 years. Um, he's from Somerset, Wisconsin. Anyway, he's going to talk about, he calls it Euronymphing, so all that light fly line stuff that I don't know that much about. It's, um, he does. It's like one step, one step to the side of Dinkara fishing or cane pole fishing, right? It kind of is. You know, I will say one thing about that. You know, I've watched a lot of it, um, and um, <clears throat> it tends to be use heavier nymphs than I use, and they they're a lot of times they're they're, they're fishing. They, they seem to want that fast water slot that they can stand next to, yep. you know? And so it's a heavier thing. And, you know, I'll just say this, and maybe this is the engineer in me, but they're on freestone streams a lot or freestone or similar with round rocks. Yeah. And we're fishing these limestone karst things with all this fractured limestone. And I think Jim is probably going to, differ but if you're fishing a heavy nymph through that jagged limestone karst you lose a lot of you lose a lot of flies i mean i i fish with guys that you know fish that euro stuff around here and you know they seem to do all right but you know i agree that you know it is for a western type fishing where you're you know your run might be three to four feet deep and you can walk up to it, you know, because the water's broken on top. And I mean, a lot of our streams around here, if you think about looking at the stream from a hundred yards away, you're spooking a hundred, you know, 50 right. to a hundred fish, you know? So, I mean, you need those long casts with, um, you know, good drifts, even when you're nymphing with a very minimalistic indicator, like your New Zealand, um, wool indicators. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I just, I have a hard time figuring that out. I, I wish I could. You know, those guys seem to catch fish quite a bit. I mean, mm-hmm. my buddy Scott's one of them, and uh, that guy nymphs up some giant fish. So, and you I know, think, maybe. Yeah, and I think Scott uses that butter stick, too, for yeah. when he does it. Um, Are you talking about the guy, the Scott I mentioned? Uh, no, uh, Scott Simmons. Oh, Scott Simmons. Yes. Yeah, from the Twin Cities. Um, right. Yeah, I mean, he actually, he came and fished Wazel with us a couple summers ago. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, just straight line, no indicator. And, you know, was was having a good hookup percentage. But I think I Scott's a I recovering th- Tenkara fisherman. Or <laughs> <laughs> a closet, closet Tenkara fisherman. Yeah, yeah. Tenkarfa. Um, but you know, I think you're right, Ted, with that, you know, our, our bottoms aren't as forgiving to just bottom bouncing nymphs across it, unless you're, especially in the wintertime, you don't want to do it. But if, if you're the guy that likes to tie on new nymphs every couple of minutes, you know, have at it. Yep. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's not my way of fishing, but I will definitely say that, uh, it works and I've seen people, you know, capitalize on it. All right, Jim. 
the the uh, second most popular winner trout fishman that I know. <laughs> I'm out in it a lot. Um, I've over the years kind of refined it down to um, more di- like Ted destination fishing, where I- I'm not trying to fish every you know inch of the stream like I might in the summer, particularly if I'm throwing you know uh, hoppers or something. Um, so I'll set up at a particular point, especially with colder weather, um, and focus on that particular run or slot. Um, I tend to travel a little lighter than I used to. I'm, I'm currently running with a, a nine foot. It's a hybrid glass uh, carbon rod, uh, four weight, and I'm still sticking with a four X on really cold days. I'll bump that to a three X, um, and often that goes straight to uh, basically a pink squirrel, but with the four and a half millimeter tungsten bead on it, so it's very heavy. Um, and if I run it too deep, I'll lose a ton of them. But that has been my lead fly all winter long. And then I'll run a 6X off that to a 14 to 18 zebra midge, unless I'm seeing some kind of midge activity. And I'll drop it down to a RS2 or a CDC midge size 20. Um, sometimes the tiny tailwater are kind of the three size 20 flies I'll, I'll carry. But my... 75% of the time I'm starting out with that larger pink squirrel trailed by a, a 14 to 18 zebra midge. And even that second fly anymore has got a two millimeter tungsten bead on it. Um, so I'm running pretty weighted flies, but, and I lose a lot, but I catch a lot uh, that way. And, and all barbless for sure in the wintertime, especially, but most of what I'm tying anymore is barbless. Um, and I tend to use the airlock. I'm not as fancy as you guys. I use the new airlock biodegradable <laughs> ones. And uh, I don't know, because I'm older, maybe it's the, the fire hole hooks have more appeal, not just because they're barbless, but they tend to have a little bigger eyes too. They easier do. They're easier nice. to thread. They're nice to get. Yep. yep. But, you, uh, go ahead. Yeah, you know, I was going to say, and on the, the usually my leaders are mono because the floral are really expensive. And that way, if I do switch to dries, you know, I'm, I'm already set there, but I've, I have switched over to the five X and six X floral. If I'm uh, for any trailing flyer running a dry dropper situation, it's just incredible how, um, how much faster your nymphs will drop with that floral tippet. If you guys tried any of those, um, those new indicators that the it's like a biodegradable bobber ball and the line goes through the more of the center of it rather than the airlocks where you screw on the top of it. I have uh, not, but they're they called look like interesting though. Os- Osos or something like that, I think is the name of it. You know, no, they're I, like the little footballs with the rubber thing in the middle. Like I tried those and I don't know, but lose them all rather quickly yeah well when uh airlock originally switched their airlocks to that bio foam thing and i canned all my other thingamabobbers in airlocks and got the new airlocks and then and then there was a fishbowl full of these new ones which are very similar to that except 
uh, you screw them apart in the middle. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't used them. I would think they work at least as well as the airlock. And there's not that goofy little plastic nut to lose too. Yeah. So I would think they, if you do that type of thing, they probably work very well. Yeah. It's just, I've, I've seen them around. I've seen them like a lot on you know Instagram or Facebook or the social medias and stuff like that. And uh, I was just curious if either of you guys had tried them out yet, but if anybody's listening, you've tried them out, choose a message. I'm curious. Um, we're always yeah. open to trying new indicators. Uh, we, we do have a set of indicators. We're still yet to try. And uh, once we get out there, we'll, we'll let you guys know on that one, but we'll keep that hush hush for now. Okay. Um, so what, what drives you guys, um, into winter fishing? Like what's your, why, why go out when it's 20 degrees and deal with, uh, ice, ice in your guides and cold hands and, um, you know, the, the joys of icy boots. You know, I used to say solitude, but that's less and less so in the winter. Um, uh, there's more people doing it all the time. Uh, personally, I think maybe it's as simple as I don't ice fish. And uh, it's the only game in town, really. Um, so there's that. Um, you know, because I have switched over to be such a warm water fisherman in the summer, and I don't like streamside nettles very much. That Yeah, um, I know. There's, there's sure no nettles in the winter. Yep. So, so that's part of it. I'm outside every day, regardless of the temperature. I either snowshoe, hike, or kayak, or trout fish, uh, depending on the conditions. Um, I have a base of generally, if it's below zero, I don't fish. Between zero and 20, uh, the wind's got to be about right. Um, but opening day was six below and I was out in it. And for me, part of it is the gear challenge to do that comfortably and well. Um, I enjoy that. I, I actually enjoy that I can handle it and handle it safely and comfortably. And it's also for me a great opportunity to catch a lot of fish. I, yeah. f- I really have a lot of success in the wintertime. Do you, uh, you know, speaking of gear, do you have any like, uh, gear kits or situations or you know things that you've learned over you know winter trout fishing over the years that you're like, like what's Man, your I wish, layering yeah like wh- i wish i knew this you know 10 years ago because oh. i think grant overlayered when we went fishing oh yeah a couple of weeks ago he showed me his his the inside of his rain jacket and is dripping wet with sweat yep. yeah that's 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 doing it a bit much um the the biggest thing is I remember with a bunch of the guys that we usually fish with showed up and they'd all ridden in the car and their waders for 35, 40 minutes and you're done within an hour. You're, you're going to freeze because you sweat. So the first thing you always put on different socks when you right before you put your waders on and you put your waders on right before you fish. Um, <coughs> I'm a big fan of the Sims wool socks and that I usually use cross country ski pants as a base layer um, or a, depending on the temperature, just a pair of long underwear, but usually the cross country ski pants are a nice, nice base. And then I, I don't get all that cold. So I, I usually have a 
uh, tight, like Patagonia Capoli long underwear, and then some kind of a air mesh second layer and a vest. Um, sometimes a down vest or a fleece vest, and then the heavy sim something to block the wind coat over that. Um, that's about it. And for the gloves, I'm a big fan of the fingerless wool gloves. Um, and then I have over mitts for uh, warming up my hands. Um, are they called super mittens? They could be called super mittens because they are. Um, but I find the over mitts are great. And I always bring a spare set of gloves and I always bring a towel to dry my hands. This dry hands is the, is one of the, the biggest keys. Um, yeah, I, and overlayering is is not good. I, I tend to you don't have much opportunity to vent because with waders, you know, you're kind of locked in. But uh, you know, at least that the jacket over you can open it up and, and vent a little bit as you need to. But yeah, I think those uh if I had a takeaway from our fishing experience a couple of weekends ago, it's the over mittens. Uh bring those and it's a seems like a really easy, quick way to warm your hands up rather than trying to stuff them in your waiter pockets or your jacket pockets are usually full of empty beer cans and snack containers. But not beer. Oh no, not beer. No, Never no. beer. Never beer. Yeah, the only thing I would uh, I would echo, Jim, is be good to your hands. So I'm I'm the oldest guy of the four of us and one of the older guys that's ever been on this podcast at 62 and uh, the hands have taken a beating over my life and I'm, I'm getting more and more sensitive to being uh, cared about uh, taking care of them. Uh, one thing I would advise is uh, I like a good hand lotion before I go out and I use one of the non-greasy ones like the colloidal oatmeal. Um, really, really, uh, helps the little cracks and things that you get over the winter. Um, and you know, yeah. Ted, I've noticed your hands look great. Thank you. <laughs> They're so, so soft. soft and supple. Really. It really helps with those post fishing trip back rubs. I'm sure. Uh, I haven't noticed any of that. I'm just going on, <laughs> on appearance. Yeah. appearance and, you know, the water's water, right? It's rarely colder than 36 degrees. And, and once you get out of this crazy season, you know, right now, once you get into the more of the February, March, you're often looking at 40 degree water anyway. So water's not really the problem. You know, we, we know how to handle 40 degree water. Um, it's it's the, the air outside of the 40 degree water. It's the yeah. air. That'll it's that dusky air and wind. Yeah. The W word always, always get into your hands, which... Yeah, you freeze your hands and your day is is shortened uh, dramatically at that point. Yeah. I don't know. I Yeah, I don't have any uh, other extra tips. Jim, your tip on uh, not wearing waders to the stream. Um, yeah. I, yeah, I agree with that 100%. I've seen, I've seen a certain individual decide to put his waders on and hop in a hop in a shower and warm his waders up from the outside before going yeah. out winter fishing. I don't think it worked well, but no, <laughs> it was uh, definitely an, an, an experiment um, failed, but you know, yeah. worth the effort, I guess. Ted, let's talk about lining rods mm -hmm. and the different, you know, theories that, uh, you know, I, 
you read across the internet or, or people talk about, you know, it's, you know, do you put a five weight on a five weight? Do you overline, you know, what are, what's your and opinions on that? And is a five weight a five weight anymore? Right. Well, yeah. you know, that's, I think that goes a lot back to the old, um, what I was saying earlier about tippets. Older rods had to protect tippets. You know, honestly, these days, uh, particularly, I think most overlining, you know, the really dramatic overlining where you're getting 40 grains too heavy or more, we're talking about streamer fishing. So probably a two X tippet at least. And I, I just don't see that as being, if you, if it breaks, it's because you made a mistake, right? Mm -hmm. I don't really think the rod has to protect it anymore, you know? So that's now we have these rods that are verging on inflexible in the bottom half, you know, all the, they're all, they're basically all started fast action. You know, I would say leave the, the glass movement off the table, but all the carbon rods and, and now we're talking all the streamer rods, six weight and up, you know, are going to be fast action or ultra fast action. So you know, I just pulled it up here. Um, you know, if you look at all these crazy streamer lines and everything, leaving the two-handed stuff off the table, most of the time, most of these lines, you know, they have all their weight in the first 30 feet, which is how AFTA, AFTMA, American Fly Tackle Manufacturers Rates Lines is 30 feet. Some of them have longer back tapers. Some of them have longer front tapers. But for the most part, they have all their weight in the first 30 feet. And so, you know, the, the standard I'm reading it right now for six weight is 160, seven is 185, eight is 210, nine is 240, 10 is 280 and on up. Um, so I think Grant, you sent me something the other day, Kelly Gallup is advertising what he calls a raw a line appropriate for throwing streamers with a seven weight that is 270 grains. So that's midway between, that's almost, um, uh, it's low end 10 weight by the old AFTMA standard. So that's like three line sizes heavy. That's three heavy, right? That is three heavy. And, you know, so after you sent me that, and, I, you know, I'm running two heavy, I was running two line sizes heavy on all my stream rods and I, next summer I'm going to back off to one line size heavy. And that is a lot of shoulder uh, is the motivation for that. So I actually looked for Kelly Gallup casting a fly rod from a boat. And there's some of that on the internet and, you know, he's on the Madison a lot, which is, Tailor made for bank pounding. And it's, it's, you know, some of it looks like a ditch to me, very straight, you know, improved rock sides. Yep. Mm -hmm. um, so you can really go down there, you know, his method that he recommends is, you know, two casters hitting every three feet. And really you're only interested in probably the first four foot of strip right or or six maybe i don't know other people know this game for trout better than i do but you know that's what his suggestion is he wants you know 
This is a well-oiled, this is, in my opinion, a well-oiled machine. Two very good casters and a very good rower going bang, bang, bang down that river. Yep. And I, you know, it, if you're doing that, you can't be false casting. You know, you're taking real short throws, you know, with not too much arm motion. And so in that case, maybe the thing to do is to massively overline. So, you know, it's pick up and shoot, pick up and shoot. I don't know. You guys. No, I, no I agree. Like, the, you know, the videos that I've seen of like Kelly streamer fishing like that, it's, you know, it's not pick up and two false casts and then, you know, gently lay your fly again. It's rip up, snap, and just come straight down and point straight at the bank again. And, you know, pretty much point your rod right where you're going down at it's, it's fast. Right, and there's none of that with him. There's none of that casting for distance where you're, you end with your rod tip high, right? You end no. with your rod tip low, yep. you know? So, you know, it probably works for that, but you know, for, for us in the Midwest with smallmouth, where you're, you're making shots. I don't know. It seems like the river's always changing width. You're making shots to, uh, um, uh, sweepers and laydowns and things. It's a, a much more technical game. And I've decided uh, the other thing is, I'm not sure that massive flies buy you that much. And so I'm going to be running 210 grain lines on my seven weights and, and 240s on my eight. So basically one size heavy. And that's mm-hmm. down from 280. Okay. Um, because last summer, 280 on an eight weight by midsummer was just, it, it wasn't that fun anymore. The fatigue. Yeah. 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 Well, and you know, this, the smallmouth floats and things that we, we do, um, those can turn into be pretty long days when it's 95 degrees and you're just getting beat by the sun and it's just yeah. a constant, yeah, constant casting game. Mm-hmm. So they, these massively overlined rods probably have uh, their role. I mean, obviously some people like them, but I think I'm backing off. Yeah. I mean, I think it's just how specialized you want to get. I mean, do you want to have like a generalist type fly fly fishing setup to where, you know, you can, you know, fish medium sized streamers for smallmouth one day or large size streamers for trout the next day and maybe, you know, run a nymph rig through a pretty deep run? Or do you want to have a rod that is only set up for um, smallmouth on the Mississippi or the St. Croix, you know, throwing six inch bugs that are mostly deer hair and are super, you know, non-aerodynamic and you're going to have to overline that thing two times. It's, I think it's, it's how specific you want to get. And that's one of the nice things about fly fishing is you can get as nerdy or in depth into a certain part mm-hmm. of it as you want to get, or you can be like, I fish a four weight uh, glass rod for dry flies and nymphs and st- you know, small streamers just for trout on, you know, Midwest trout streams and that's it. So, I mean, I, I think it's how, how specific you want to be. Yeah. 
And I think I sent you this grant, that industry guy talking about why the industry names them the way they do. I can basically, this is for, if there's any newer fishermen, um, don't read that number on the fly line <laughs> when you're, when you're mating it up. Right. Um, because the industry has found that, and I know a few people that are like this, they absolutely will not buy any fly line. If the rod says seven, they'll only buy a fly line that says seven. And so the industry has now said, okay, it's a seven weight line for streamers. And that can mean 210 grains or 240 grains, or yeah. apparently in case of Kelly Gallup, 270 grains. So, you know, I, I realize not everybody likes to think about all these numbers, but I would go back to, you know, I would start with probably taking the for single-handed rods that the manufacturers being more or less straight with you that if it says seven, for instance, it would, it would cast a trout fly on a trout seven. In other words, mm -hmm. 185 grain line. Yep. Right? Yeah. I would start there and I would say, if you're throwing bugs, I would go look for a 210 grain line or in extreme cases, a 240, right? And read the grains, don't read the number. Okay. Yeah. I, I had a, I bought an eight weight a few years ago and the shop guys, you know, set me up with a eight weight line. And for the life of me, I couldn't cast this thing. And I thought, you know, I'm, I'm a fairly competent caster, you know, I should be able to, you know, throw anything out there with this eight weight and I just couldn't do it. And, you know, when I really started paying attention the rod wasn't flexing like it was supposed to. I think the rod was much faster and stiffer than the line that they had um, sold me on. Mm -hmm. And so it wasn't until, you know, the next year when I ripped that line off and put a line size heavier that I could get that rod to load properly and, and cast those, those bugs out there. So, yeah, I mean, just because you have an eight weight rod and you buy a line that says eight weight, it might, it might or might not, you know, cast, you know, well for you. It, it all depends on your casting style and how fast and stiff the rod is and what the, you know, obviously what the line weighs. But um, I think, I think there's definitely a lot of variables now when it comes to lines and rods. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and there's no standard for rod stiffness, right? So you've got this variability in, you know, you can buy a, you know, my first six, six weight streamer rod, I was sold a 210 grain line, which was an eight weight. And which is fine because the rod was so stiff that it needed an eight weight line on it. But, mm -hmm. you know, now I, I cast, I'm almost exclusively uh, fiberglass um, with a couple of hybrids thrown in there and they tend to be more to true to weight and, but even with those, I still run on the lighter ones. Um, I've got basically two lines for each weight, and one is a half size heavy. So, you know, my three weights, I run a, a 100 and a 110 grain, and the four weights, a 120 and a 130. But 
I also have some rods that'll throw, you know, I've got a five weight that I'll throw a, you know, four weight line on and a six weight line on it, you know, and I think for, um, there's sometimes an advantage to underlining too, uh, particularly when throwing some dries on windy days with a smaller diameter line. Um, but no, for the most part though, uh, especially with graphite, I find that a half size heavy or depending on the, the other side of that is the, uh, the more aggressive, shorter, you know, you, yes, the most of the weights in the first 30 feet, but there's a lot of people that aren't casting 30 feet, you know? So if you exactly. get these shorter, aggressive heads, you know, like Kelly Gallup's using, you, you basically, you could put a jig on the end of the thing, you know, um, because you're just picking up and throwing it, you know, 25, 30 feet. But yeah, I, I'm with, I'm with Ted. I, I wish, the manufacturers were a little more upfront about here's what you are buying. You know, the grain rate uh, weight rather, I know a lot of people don't want to pay attention to it, but um, I think a lot of people who sell the gear don't do service either. You know, here's, here's your package. Have a nice day uh, without really going into, are you casting big fuzzy bugs or trying mm-hmm. to do something a little more delicate, you know, or a little smaller. Well, I, I know there's, there, there are a few fly shops that um, will carry multiple spools with different grain lines on them. So, you know, if you're, if you're trying to get into this bigger fly game, you know, you're going in to buy a rod and, and a line, ask, ask the guys behind the counter, do you have this grain line or do you have an overlined line I can try on the rod and just go wherever they'll let you go and cast it. You know, try it, try it out, and make sure it fits your casting style too, because there's a little bit of that involved um, when you're looking at some of these line options now. But yeah, it's. I mean, we could probably spend two weeks talking about line weights and what all the different type of lines are, but I think that's a pretty good starting point to make sure that you're sizing them up correctly. I would say one more thing, and this is definitely for the the extremist and lunatics that and that's that our is, customer. That's our listener base. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, you know, <laughs> they're, they're I, lunatics. They might not be extremists. <laughs> I'm a scientific anglers guy. And if you're a real guy, I'm sure it's the same kind of thing, but uh, most of the lines I buy, you know, are like, I, I buy this, uh, I like this, um, amplitude smooth tighten long line which is a weight forward line that was what i'd be throwing for smallmouth floating bugs and everything if you look at the the sinking lines you know they're so small diameter and they have tungsten head they have so much tungsten in them they're small diameter and they shoot like crazy but you get to that the line that you're casting your popper with or whatever top water in the summer that line we typically buy something that's a cold to uh, a cold, cold to medium temperature line, but then we get to midsummer and some of them are a little bit gummy, you know, mm-hmm. when it's 90 degrees and 80 degree water, um, you know, which usually only lasts three weeks mercifully. 
uh, all of a sudden, I kind of wish I had a tropical line on there for about a month, you know? Um, so anyway, like I said, that's if you've got, you're really, really looking for more stuff to buy. <laughs> but but and, and we said, all fortunately, are. the sinking lines, they, they're fine. Just need more spools. Yeah. That's why you fish out of boats. So you can have like eight different spools, four different rods. Exactly. And every different line combination that you could ever think of. See, you need multiple rod bolts on the drift boat. That's a great idea. And like and, with the ladder rack up above yep. on your boat and <laughs> like three or four rod bolts on there with like 16 different fly rods. And a bimini top. Um, that, Jim, that would be nice. Jim, I think for you, you could just do, you get a secondary kayak that you would tow behind your racing kayak yes. that you can keep <laughs> your extra rods on and cold well, chicken. The, the, the beauty is it is a touring kayak and I, I can fit. I literally could fit all of my rods inside of it. You could fit all down. 17 inside, inside there. I've, I've, I've traded off two. So I'm down to 15. <laughs> uh, yeah. But he's probably got like three on order. So right. currently for sale. Nope. Yeah. Nope. Nothing on order at the moment. I'm down to 15. What rods do you have for sale, Jim? Uh, it's an Epic uh, 686 and a Livingston uh, eight foot six rod and an Livingston Western glass, eight foot six. Well, if uh, any of you listeners are looking for some fancy rods, reach out to Jim on Instagram. There you go. You can get yourself a real nice, gently used. Have you even fished them? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Wasn't sure if these were ones that like, oh, I like it, but I found a different one a day later. So I ordered a newer version. No, I've, I've, I've cycled through uh four different six weights and uh i'm keeping the hybrid the nine foot which is a, a basically it's a graphite taper but it's a it's a livingston oh what do they call the darn thing western no it's not a western glass uh ys fast so it's it's a graphite uh, glass combo or hybrid um, so I, I, my next fly rod I'm in the market for is, a probably an eight foot four, eight foot six, six weight. Another also six. Glass. Yeah. That's but good. I didn't like care, sh- I didn't, like the I didn't shorter care ride, for the Jim. two that I have. Well, I think the, the shorter rods, like you were saying before, definitely help with the casting out of the kayak. Yeah. Yeah. All righty. Between eight and eight foot six is kind of the sweet spot. I've got some shorter seven foot six rods that I use occasionally, but not so much from the kayak. But nine foot doesn't work too pretty good sitting down. You need longer arms, like go-go gadget arms. Like yeah, a Spectre gadget, that. you know, mm-hmm. just shoot that up there and go. Or you could, I, you should just start standing up on that uh, kayak you got and just uh, see how that goes for you. Uh, doesn't work so good. <laughs> nope. Nope. I can That's sit hard. sideways. I That's can sit sideways with my, uh, I can sit sideways, with my feet in the water, but, uh, yeah, standing is not going to happen. All right. Um, well, I want to touch on this, Ted, I know you do, um, 
a lot of volunteer work with the cap to um, chapter TU. Um, so I was wondering if you could just kind of touch on the, the projects that you guys are working on over, you know, course of this winter and probably last winter too, and kind of what, what's going on and what the, the goal of the project is. Sure. Uh, so I'm not in the policy end of this. I I'm just a member of that river falls TU chapter goes by kayak two ish one of those Jewish. fake indian names i think kayak dash tu dash w-i-s-h um and so you know i'm just a worker i go to some of the meetings but i i don't set the policy um in general so we have been working on the upper kinney which is above river falls um, and I'll talk about that in a moment. Just generally, TU projects sort of fall into two levels. Uh, one involves um, heavy modification of the stream, okay? And that always has to be done in concert with the uh, appropriate state DNR, right? You just you don't change. You don't lock down a stream's channel with a bunch of riprap without a lot of permitting, right? And so, uh, and normally that's done by the state or contractors that they have, the actual dirt work and the, the heavy work that's done. And they come in and, and you know, recontour the bank, put the rock in, the riprap in, uh, put rope balls, jam those down into the bunker structures. Well, yeah, we've kind of gotten away from lunker structures. I can talk about that. Uh, on the upper kidney, we're definitely away from lunker structures, and I'll talk about that in a second. Remind me if I forget. But anyway, that's kind of the level one. And uh, and the volunteer efforts are usually involved in the beginning with clearing back uh, undesirable species. And undesirable species mean 99% box elder buckthorn and willows we leave them sometimes there's desirable willows and then there's others that are problematic but that's most of the trees um and the whole idea here uh sometimes is simply when you're clearing the banks sometimes it's to to get things ready for the earth movers to come in sometimes it's simply just to make it nicer as a fishing access we only work on land that has an easement dedicated, right? Um, and so, uh, you know, when, and right now we're working on the upper Kinney, they're none of these big projects. They're none of them big projects. There's no river recontouring or anything like that. We're simply removing, uh, because this happens to be relatively close to River Falls, that's where you tend to see the buckthorn. Buckthorn spreads out of cities, right? So more buckthorn than box elder. And one of the things we're trying to do is basically clear out the floodplain so that the river can flood predictably in spring. And you don't have all these uh, three inch buckthorn to six inch buckthorn sticking up that, um, you know, end up being big log jams that cause fast currents going around. That's when you cut a side channel and stuff like that. So we're trying to get the river to flood predictably and gently. Uh, this one we're working on, uh, I'll tell you, it's 
if you on Google Maps, you can find it uh, east of east of River Falls on 65. Um, there's a road called Quarry Road and Earthworks Landscape and Architects. We're working upstream from that on Google Maps. It's called the Kinney River Fishing Parking. I know Grant you and Matt, you've both been there. It's got a little handicap yeah. here, there. Yep. Uh, we're working right there. I mean, within sight of that. And if you look uh, on your good friend Trout Routes map, it is amazing the amount of that Kinney east of River Falls that is under easement. So permanently. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. it's a huge amount of easement in there. Uh, you can pretty much fish your way. <laughs> up to 94, you know, it's probably 75% under easements and the rest of it stick to the river and nobody cares. Yeah. Um, so right now we're, we're clearing buckthorn out of that. Uh, we burn it. Um, some people might, you know, I'll tell you why we burn it. Um, in the past, they would pile it for wildlife piles, um, but they had some harsh flooding, which carried those piles to the next bridge downstream and caused basically caused the bridge to flood. Yeah. So the DNR now encourages us, encourages us to burn. Um, and, uh, we caught it. We caught a tree on fire, uh, two weeks ago. <laughs> um, so we, that's why we do it in the winter, uh, because the, the, you don't have to worry too much about fires. Um, and uh, last, I'm going to interject one question here, though. Uh, when you're cutting the buckthorn or willow or what have you, are you able to put the? Uh, I think the product I'm used to is tardon, but um, the systemic killing chemical that can be applied in the winter time. Yeah, that was my question. What do you do to the stumps? Because Spray my my uh, my experience with buckthorn is if you don't kill the stump, you're just going to be back there next year. Oh, we spray them. They have little hand sprayers and we hit every stump. Well, okay. obviously the finger size stuff, you don't, you miss that. Um, so the normal procedure on, okay. It's a much better situation with box elder because it's usually not as thick and it's a little easier to kill and identify and spray it. So we'll, we'll spray anything, certainly anything bigger than an inch gets hit with just a little spray. We have, it's an oil-based product. It has dye in it. So you can tell when you've spread, sprayed. Mm, and so we, we spray those stumps. I can tell you it was very, last time we were doing it, there were so many feet, you know, buckthorn is a tree that's got a male and a female. And there were so many females in there and we were dragging those tops of those buckthorns over to the fire pile. And all those buckthorn berries were just falling everywhere. So we know in this particular site, we'll have to come in in summer and do a foliar spray on that sprouted buckthorn. And that's probably going to be two, two cycles of that before it's really mm -hmm. well, well under control. Um, you know, the, the winter spraying is very nice because the desirable stuff is all dormant. The summer spraying, honestly, there is some collateral damage. Um, most of your woody, plant killers like tardon and garlon will kill burn grasses back a little bit at least 
So the summer foliar spraying is tricky, but we have to do that. Yeah. Oh, mm. well, um, we appreciate it. Those um, that fish. Well, that's the other thing I want to say about all these projects. Uh, I think a lot of people feel like that it's, it's some massive entity driving this. Almost all of these are driven by the local chapters. And it's a bunch of guys in their 60s um, that like to chainsaw. Um, they're all very locally driven uh, projects, and they're always looking for volunteers. Um, yep. and you'll, you'll get fed, that's for sure. You get fed. Um, you're... Um, because it's a state project, we do require safety training for chainsawing. Uh, normally, so I actually took the training, but I never chainsaw. I'm just a brush dragger. Um, we don't. Uh, um, so it takes about three people for every one chainsaw. It takes about three. One, one good cutter can make enough work for three uh, pilers and stackers and tending the fire people. So we always need a lot of people that literally just show up with some clothes that they don't mind getting holes burned in a good pair of gloves. <laughs> and that's about it. Yeah. Who doesn't want to start a, a fire out in the woods? I mean, exactly. On, that's pretty cool. Yeah. And, and if you do want to volunteer, you can just reach out to the, um, the chapter directly and reach out to the chapter and they'll put you in, in touch with the, uh, volunteer coordinator. Okay. Um, and Kyap has a pretty good website. Yeah. Yeah, they absolutely um, do. And they will be at that Kinney river fishing parking this Saturday, starting at nine. Um, it's a bit of a, this one, we've got a little John boat. And so we're, we got one guy in waders that's kind of, the uh, river man and he, they, they take you across the river in a John boat and we're working on the far side of the river. It's like a mile and a half hike to get over there otherwise. Okay. Um, so yeah, they'll be there that Saturday. If anybody, all you have to do is uh, just look up the volunteer coordinator. They think they make you sign a release and put you to work, but absolutely don't wear anything you're in love with. <laughs> <laughs> don't wear your good waiters. We'll include, we'll include the, the website and um, if I can find yeah. some good contact information in the, in the show notes um, mm -hmm. so people good. can reach out to that. But yeah. yeah, definitely get out there and help. You know, Matt and I came and fished with you. I think it was last mm -hmm. spring, early mm -hmm. spring. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, in March. it's really nice, good, easy walking, um, good access to the water. And yeah, yeah it's, I mean, we found fish. So yeah, this chapter's big uh, projects have been on the Trimble, which have varied in quality from pretty successful to not very successful. Um, Trimble is a tough nut to crack a lot of sand. It's just a difficult, uh, you know, it's not wonderful habitat. Um, a really nice project at Plum Creek down by Plum city. Um, uh, everybody knows God bless America on the Trimble. That's a Kayaptoish project where they do now. <laughs> so, um, uh, if you like, you know, a lot of these projects are small water projects and, and they, they work out nicely. Ah, yes. The subject of lunker structures. There it is. Um, <laughs> particularly in the, uh, uh, basically we are doing everything we can do to give 
the brook trout every advantage that we can give it. And lunker structures are structures that support predatory brown trout. You know, they, the thing they everybody sure do. wants to catch. Yeah. 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 But we we don't put them in anymore. Um, Good. Because of that evil brown trout that hangs out there and, and either runs off or just eats the brook trout. You know, I'd, I'd be okay with finding some larger brook trout, uh, in the streams that, that we get, you know, it'd be, it'd be fun to start getting into some more of those 12, 12 inch plus brook trout instead of, uh, yep, I would, it's they're hard a, to find. Um, you know, I'll tell you, uh, if you're interested, um, the extreme upper Kinney is a good place for that. Certainly a lot of brook trout and a few sizable brook trout. Okay. I'm talking beyond interstate 94. I'm talking bow and arrow casts. Nice. We know a guy who's very good with the bow and arrow casting. Uh, Uh, There you go, people. The the price he paid for this podcast has got you a hot tip. Hot tips. All about the hot tips. Um, well, awesome. So yeah, like I said, I'll include um, that information in the show notes. Uh, you know, reach out to Capturish, go out there, drag some brush, eat some food, meet some new people. Burn, burn some stuff. And we generally work until um, the snow is so, uh, until the snow goes away and it's not safe to burn anymore. All right. And hey, you know what? If you bring your fishing stuff and you're up for it, you can probably get some fishing in after you're done burning a bunch of brush piles too. So I've seen it done. Dual day. I, I don't have enough energy, but I've seen it done. <laughs> <laughs> any other any other questions you got, Matt? Jim's giving me oh. a thumbs up. Jim, Jim's good. I I had a I had a lot of fun uh fishing with you guys a couple of weeks ago. Um the week after wasn't fun for some of you, but um, <laughs> the, the the day and a half that we we spent hanging out, uh, Jim Jim, you can cook an an amazing bison steak. That thing was oh, phenomenal. Man. Yep. Um, but yeah, it was it was it was good to get together. I like so, I always I, enjoy fishing with you guys. Well, I appreciate that, and had loved to cook for this group again. I'm still disappointed though; no one caught it. Bison, New York Strip. Anyone? Buffalo, Buffalo Bill. Okay, you know. <laughs> Buffalo, New York. Yep. Anyway, those sleepers that Jim's always laying on us that kind of sneak up a couple of weeks later. Jim, Jim's the king of dad jokes. <laughs> yeah, I, I have, I've got some pretty bad dad jokes. <laughs> <laughs> but we'll we'll definitely have to get back down uh southeastern Minnesota, uh hopefully around a BWO hatch or something uh early this spring because yes. I think that's Coming when up. the real the real magic can pop out of those areas down there. And um give it give it a month, month and a half. Yep. Mid mid March and, and that we, place is on fire. When does this thing actually drop, Grant? Tomorrow. Oh, well then. Everybody listening, send out positive vibes to Robert Hawkins, who's down in Mexico trying to catch his first rooster fish right now. Is that what he is that what he's targeting? Okay. Uh he's yeah, he's got a day or two booked to do that. Yeah, well, hopefully nachos can produce and uh 
I know that little surf town that they're staying in and, and I kept telling them there's oddly enough, some really good pizza joints down there. So, um, but yeah, hopefully, hopefully you can tie it. See the fear is though, if Bobby starts catching all these saltwater fish, he's, he's going to go somewhere with saltwater and never come back. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He gone. Bye-bye. He gone. Um, Yeah. Thank you guys. Appreciate it. Um, you know, Thank like you. Matt said, had a blast fishing uh, down southeast Minnesota. Looking forward to the next time we can get out. And if you guys get out tomorrow, hopefully with this nicer weather, good luck. Stay away yeah. from the Tinkara fishing and uh, we'll, we'll catch up with you guys soon. Okay. All right. Take care. Thanks, everybody.